Welcome to the KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Legal Basics 1, Part 2, Advocacy and Unauthorized Practice of Law. We hope you review the materials that were sent or that you visit certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome everyone to KCADV's certification series, and we are talking about advocacy and the avoidance of unauthorized practice of law. And we are with KCADV's general counsel, Meg Savage. Hello, Meg. Hi, Diane. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> it's good to have you here. We've been chatting about this for a little bit. So I kind of want to start, if it's okay with you, right from the premise, because I think it's a requirement, of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a requirement of our funding and our, and our status as advocates that we make sure that all new advocates and member program staff know the difference between advocacy as an attorney and advocacy as an advocate. So what unauthorized practice of law means. So I just wanted to hit that hard because I know that that's a critical distinction. Yeah. So under Kentucky statutes, we have a definition of victim's advocate And part of that definition revolves around training that advocates should have. And part of that training is that they should know the difference. They should be trained on the avoidance of the unauthorized practice of law. And so to walk into a courtroom, especially in Kentucky, and say that you're a victim's advocate, that's a critical piece of something that you should have been trained on. And so this is a little bit off subject, but it came up the other day. We were talking about interpretive services. I was actually talking with the administrator of courts and they're talking about interpretive services. An advocate can sometimes mean an attorney. And so I think sometimes there's even a little bit of confusion there when we use the term advocate of what we mean through KCADV and what we're meaning, whether somebody's actually an attorney. And so there's activities that advocates are sort of expected to do when they're in the court system and they're in the community. And so I thought if it's okay, we would just sort of go through those. Sure. And yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but you know, I think that advocates have a very critical role to play in the court system. And then as well, you know, non-court related activities that really are pretty unique to victims advocates and that, you know, most attorneys are never going to fill that gap. So I think it is important to realize that a victim's advocate does have a really significant and unique role to play when helping survivors, especially through the court process. The thing that I hear oftentimes sort of just the catch phrases is that attorneys are often advising or telling a person what might be in the best interest for them to do and that they're giving some sort of a legal opinion on that. Where I think if you're checking yourself, because sometimes it can get a little confusing as you're an advocate, you know, you may be working with someone and go, well, you know, I think you should get a protective order and maybe file for custody. But then you're starting to get into you know, legal opinion and guidance, where an advocate is really kind of giving a menu. I always sort of tell new advocates, you're sort of giving a menu of options that might be available this to this person. You could file for a protective order. You could file for this. You could go to shelter. Like there's lots of things that are available for you to do. And as an advocate, I think it's important to know the sort of how to go about that, but that you're really not pushing or, or nudging a person to choose one path over another. Is there something else that you would say is sort of more succinct 
I'm not a succinct soul. That's, that's not, it's nobody who's going to ever criticize me for being succinct. Well, actually in Kentucky, we also have a legal definition for um, the helpful. practice of law. There you go. And, um, you know, generally speaking, the practice of law is going to be taking someone on as a client, often accepting and negotiating a fee for those services. Most attorneys will have their client sign a retainer, which is an agreement that just sets out very specifically like what services will be provided and what fee, if any, is being charged. And then, yes, an, a really important role of the attorney is they take the fact situation as the client presents it, and then they employ their expertise, their training and education and experience to come up with an opinion about, you know, what would probably be the best course of action for that individual. Ultimately, it's going to still be up to that individual, you know, how they want to proceed but I think in many cases, the person is really reliant upon the attorney to tell them like what they are recommending. And um, so it would be just like going to a doctor and, you know, you're, you're going to listen to what the doctor has to say and they may give you some options. But, you know, you're really relying on that person's experience and expertise to, to tell you what's the best course of action. And then attorneys also, two other things that they typically do and that are included in this legal definition of the practice of law is to draw up a legal document and to represent that individual, whether it's in a court proceeding, an administrative proceeding, or even representing that individual in interactions that they may have with other people that are involved in that case. And so those are things that really are the domain of an attorney and which an advocate should avoid. But as I said, an advocate can play a role that, you know, is maybe not going to be present for survivors with anybody else, sometimes even when the survivor has an attorney. And so, as you said, really the important role of an advocate is to provide information and tell them about, you know, what their potential options might be without applying any sort of like, well, here's the fact pattern and here's what I know about the law. And so I'm going to give you an opinion about what I think you should do. That's definitely where you have crossed the line and you're getting into the practice of law. And it fits really into the whole philosophy of KCADB and KCADB member programs. When we look at defining domestic violence in, in terms of power and control. It's really critical, I think, for advocates to constantly give the power back, the decision-making back to the person that we're working with. You know, I think one of the complaints that people often have with the criminal justice system is that power is sort of taken away from them, right? It becomes now the court's making decisions or a jury's making decision or, you know, law enforcement's making decision. You call and you sort of give up some of that power because now these outside entities are sort of stepping in. But in an advocacy relationship, through our member programs, the goal always is to give that power back and to respect and honor that people are, you know, for the experts on their own lives and given, you know, equitable information and options that maybe they didn't know they had, but now they can make safe choices for themselves and their children. Correct. <laughs> We're I so do, in awe of each other. I yes, do agree. That's right. That's I, true. I do agree with that, Diane. And, you know, definitely anybody who's ever been caught up in the court system 
feels very disempowered. And, you know, even when you do have an attorney, oftentimes it is the attorney that's driving the bus, making the decisions. And, you know, you're probably paying that person to do that, but you may not agree with all of those decisions. Certainly when it's a criminal prosecution, you're even further removed from having any control over what happens because that prosecutor is representing the state and all the individuals in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, not just you. So, yeah. So, again, that's why an advocate, a good advocate can play such a critical role in that process to really make that person feel informed, like they know what's going on and that they feel at least empowered in in those realms of their life where they still have that ability. And sort of preparing them for it. I think preparing the person you're working with for the distinction in roles, right? I've had, I remember really clearly a woman coming back and she went to court, she got a domestic violence order, no contact, three years, custody of the children and the house. And she came back, Meg, distraught. She was mad. She didn't feel heard. She didn't feel validated. She thought the court was against her. But as she was telling me in a factual place, she won the case, right? She she got everything that she had requested, but it was a very... What was the word you just used? But it was a very disenfranchising experience for her. Like she didn't feel validated. She didn't feel like she had any. She wanted her story heard. She wanted these emotional pieces, I think, to be brought up. And and so when we're working with individuals, gearing them, preparing them for what the experience of a court is like. And if you're in those courts enough and you know what specific judges are like, you know, specific prosecutors are like, you can prepare. I'm not talking about bad mouthing people, but just preparing them for what that experience is going to be like and what your role is. And so if they want to share and they want their emotional needs met, the advocate can kind of hold that piece. And I think there's sometimes a confusion in in the criminal justice system, what everybody's supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's certainly an intimidating and usually an alien experience for most individuals, no matter what type of court proceeding it is, they're not going to know exactly what to expect. So for a seasoned court advocate to be able to explain that process, it's just invaluable. And yeah, there's so many pieces that they can share with that person without crossing that line. You know, you never want to tell an individual like, this is how you should conduct your your hearing, if it's like a protective order hearing, you know, but you can give them information about what their options are as far as, you know, trying to bring witnesses or if there's any sort of medical evidence or police evidence or any other evidence that they might want the judge to look at and, you know, preparing them to have that ready. And, you know, the flip side of that, too, is that advocates have to be very careful because, A seasoned court advocate can appear to be very much like an attorney to a survivor. And because the survivor is so unfamiliar with the process, they may be turning to the advocate to kind of cross that line and, you know, wanting the advocate to, you know, fill a bigger role and an inappropriate role. So advocates need to also be prepared, you know, to make sure that the survivor understands what their role is. And as I've said, it's, you know, it's never wrong to say to the person, I'm not an attorney. I'm not an attorney, but this is what I can tell you. This is the information I can share with you. Do you have any guidance when you hear an attorney give what you are pretty sure is incorrect 
information as an advocate. So, or maybe not of the best. Maybe you have an attorney who says, you know what, I don't know that you need a protective order. Let's just do some sort of agreed order through the divorce. Or you're not eligible to file for a protective order because you don't meet these requirements, but actually you believe as an advocate that they're incorrect. Do you have suggestions around that? Because I, I'm not advocating that advocates get into dueling dialogue, but sometimes attorneys just don't know. You know, sometimes advocates do know that system a little bit better. So how do you, what's your thoughts on that? Well, one way to be a little bit proactive about that is to carry around like just an informational sheet that sort of talks about the differences between a protective order and what is, you know, variously called mutual no contact order or temporary civil restraining order. There's all these crazy terms for that critter um, across the state of Kentucky. And, you know, an attorney might be giving their client very good and legitimate advice that because of, you know, what they know about the circumstances, what they know about that judge, that if they go forward with the protective order hearing, that that judge is likely not to enter that protective order. So it may be very good advice that, that you know, better than having nothing will have this. On the other hand, it can be very overutilized and, you know, attorneys may feel like this is the, you know, path of least resistance and at least we'll get something in place. And so, you know, they may be advising their client, you know, yeah, this this will work for you. And so, you know, sometimes that's not coming from the best place. So, I mean, that would be my only suggestion would be, you know, as a court advocate, having that information already ready to give to individuals right up front all the time. And then it's not like I'm not trying to argue this particular case. This is just something that I give out, you know, to everybody that's a petitioner in a protective order case. The same with carrying a letter or something that, you know, explains to any judge that might question like why you're there, what your role is. And that sometimes happens to advocates. If there's a fill-in judge or if it's an advocate that has to cover a county where they're not normally going, you know, so just having those documents sort of handy and handing them out, you know, anytime the survivor wants to take that that piece of paper. Because, you know, and I have actually spoken with advocates who have gotten caught in exactly that same trap. And it never works out well for the advocate. Never. So the last thing I would advise an advocate to do is to start trying to challenge an attorney in the courtroom <laughs> or out in the hallway. Uh, because they're not going to like it and they're going to try to get you in trouble as quickly as they can. I agree with you. I mean, our role is to be effective and to be a good advocate for that individual. And so, you know, you as an as an advocate need to strategize the how and the why and the where and the when you do certain things. In kind of my list in front of me, I was looking at, you know, typical activities of advocates and the role of an advocate. And the one in, that I think is so critical is community building. If you have trust and relationship with your attorneys and your criminal justice folks, you use usually have a little more ability to sort of navigate that. But if it's somebody that you don't have that connection with or you don't have that trust, you need to not do anything for your sense of I'm going to win this argument to the detriment of the person that you're working with. There's a time and a place. 
And I love, too, that you said sometimes you just don't know the strategy. You know, I've had several times advocates kind of come back in to shelter after being in court and furious, right? Just absolutely furious. This was handled incorrectly. It was inappropriate. And they are ready to call the paper and go take this person to task, right? They're just, but you dig into it a little bit more and there's a little more substance as to what's going or a little more nuance as to what's really going on. So make sure that you have all the facts and the information. And maybe, as you said, sometimes it's better to get the small win as opposed to no win at all. And this attorney may know something about that court or something else that's going on. And that was a strategy they took. So not advocating that people, that advocates just quietly sit by the side and presume everybody's got everybody's best interest, but know how and when to do it, but also give the I don't know, benefit of the doubt, maybe that might be a little too generous. I don't know. But but giving due diligence to make sure that what you think you're seeing is truly what's playing out in that courtroom. Right. And, you know, it's never a best outcome. But even at the end of the day, if if things go south and the person is pressured into agreeing to one of these, you know, orders that's attached to a divorce case or what have you, you know, they can always go once you have the opportunity to better educate them about their options. They might be able to go back to their attorney and, and with that armed with that information, you know, challenge what has already been done. And, you know, it may possibly be undoable. But even if you win that argument in the moment and the petitioner insists on having that protective order hearing, the attorney is going to be very unhappy And I would hate to think that someone would not do the best job that they can just because they're mad, but we have some egos. We have sometimes, sometimes, not always. Some attorneys have big egos. Yes. Yes. What is, you talked about having some paperwork kind of ready and, and, you know, on the go and available when you're working. What is the statute that permits advocates to be in court with individuals. We had a staff person that laminated that for everybody, made a little card and she laminated it for all the staff. So when they were going to courts, like if somebody challenged them, they could just show it. And my, my follow-up question, is that just for EPO court or is that for any sort of court proceeding? We use it for EPO court, but I'm curious if it's for any court proceeding. Right. It's actually attached to the status of the individual that's involved in the court case. So it's the right of all crime victims, and it's found in the Crime Victims Bill of Rights series of statutes, which is in uh, KRS Chapter 421. And so you know, it's the right of anyone who fits under the definition of a victim of crime to have a victim's advocate accompany them, you know, to all court proceedings. So that's basically what the statute says. So I think there's a very good argument to be made that that would include a dependency, neglect and abuse hearing, a termination of parental rights hearing, a divorce, protective order case, obviously criminal court proceedings. So anytime the person is appearing in court, and some aspect of that case is tied to some criminal action that's occurred against them, even if it's not being prosecuted as a crime. So many protective order cases, there is no concomitant prosecution going on, but that doesn't mean the person isn't a crime victim. 
It's interesting you said dependency and neglect. That was exactly the court that I was wondering because I think we sort of preserve that, that that's usually a very close court. They're very protective of that court who can go in and out. And I think as an advocate, get with your director and it would be good homework to do prior to the court when you're wanting to go in. What is the current family court? Most I think most of our folks now have family court, maybe two thirds, two thirds, it's about a half, half. What is the current process? And if the judges are not wanting advocates to go in, that would be a time for the directors to start going in and seeing if we can kind of open those doors up a little bit. I know it's an area that's so scary for so many of our parents when they're in that whole DCBS process. So to be there as an advocate for them, I think would be critically important. Yeah. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the judge gets to decide. So even though you have a statute that you can argue and say, well, you know, our victim's advocate should be allowed to go into these types of proceedings, it's the judge that gets to decide. And it's kind of hard to challenge that. And so I think that if Marcy's law passes here in a couple of weeks, you know, maybe that will change because it really does strengthen the right of a victim to have a representative in the courtroom. That will be interesting to see. We should know that soon, should we? Yeah, that's a complicated amendment there. I just wanted to direct, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time with it, but for folks that are listening in, I do want to direct people to our member member program service standards. Again, as Meg said, everybody should have read that already. But I think it's very important that we are looking as to who our services are available to. And does everybody, do we make our services and, and our services that we provide available to everyone? And so we need to really check. We talked earlier about checking our own bias and judgment. So survivors have the right to political, economic, social, religious, environmental, and cultural equality, both including equity and justice and self-determination, and also look through a lens of your advocacy out in the community and your court advocacy through a cultural competence. You know, so work with your member programs, work with your community folks, really kind of look and make sure that your immigrant, refugee, GLBTQ, people of color, like really take a robust look at your advocacy services and make sure that what we're doing is available to everybody and then people know how to access our services. That was a whole big mouthful, Meg. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I just wanted to bring attention to it because we again have a tendency to deliver services as we would receive services, but not everybody is a 50-year-old white woman such as me. And so you have to kind of think about how other people access services. Right. And um, that raises the point too that even though we are talking about both advocacy and, you know, avoiding the unauthorized practice of law. And so we're sort of concentrating on um, legal services that survivors may need that, you know, many of our court processes, they're just not safe for survivors. And so I think you really need to take that into consideration. And again, obviously, we're letting survivors determine, you know, what is safe and appropriate for them and not wanting to, you know, force some remedy on them that they may not want and it may not be safe for them because I think that, you know, we still have a huge problem in our court system with racism and uh, sexism. And so, you know, those are very real. And I think survivors may have a good sense of that. And um, so, 
you know, in addition to making sure that we offer or talk about what might be legal remedies for this individual, that we need to also think about if that's not safe for that person, then, you know, what other type of services are available and are safe. And it's sometimes hard to know what's safe or not for someone if you don't live that experience, that shared experience. So, again, if you're working with immigrant and refugee community, for example, you know, be working with your local in, in Lexington area. We have Kentucky Refugee Ministries or Maxwell Legal Clinic, but whoever that is, look and see if you know, is filing a protective order the right thing to do in this case? Is filing a criminal charge the right thing to do in this case? And things that you might offer, not that you would hide that information, but things that you would suggest and offer might be a little more complicated for somebody else. And so really begin to think through that, again, not just in your own lens, but with the support and help of a really diverse group of people. So we make sure that we're not doing any harm for anybody. Some of the things that we are really good at, I think, in shelter programs is knowing that the men and women that come to our programs can be messy. You know, they're, they're experiencing trauma, high anxiety, stress level. We know that presentation and stories can be not always in a linear, rational, factual sort of way. The court system is not our friend in that because it's a system that is not necessarily set up for people that don't tell their stories in a linear, factual sort of way. So again, as an advocate, we need to begin to prepare for that. I think attorneys probably often will say, well, that was a surprise. It would have been nice had I known this had happened before we got into the courtroom, right? And so we have some time as we're working with our folks to begin to, I love the word intellectual curiosity. I think I've used it in every podcast, but we have some time to kind of dig in there and find out maybe if they trust us, what things might bubble up and pop up. So I would think as a, a good role of an advocate also is to eliminate some of those surprises that can be really harmful in the court system. Yeah, that would, you know, be a perfect marriage, I think, to, for every survivor to have an advocate and an attorney. Unfortunately, too many survivors go into court unrepresented, and that's really difficult for them. But for those that do have an attorney, attorneys may view the survivor, the survivor's experience and what needs to be done and how it should be done in a very different lens from the survivor themselves. And so, you know, if it's possible with the permission of the attorney for the advocate to sit in on, you know, at least part of the appointments that they have, you know, to to be that second set of ears, to be listening for, you know, what needs to be gathered, what needs to be provided to the attorney, you know, what are upcoming court dates, et cetera. And then, you know, working with the survivor after the fact, you know, to make sure that that happens. Because there are very few attorneys, I think, that go through law school that ever learn about the dynamics of domestic and sexual violence. And so, you know, some attorneys may have had that, you know, some sort of experience or training before law school, or maybe they get it sort of on the job. But, you know, in Kentucky, attorneys aren't allowed to specialize. And so, you know, you may hire an attorney that, you know, does divorces, and some of those may involve domestic violence. That doesn't really mean that they do understand that trauma that survivors have experienced and how that trauma can impact 
the responses that they get from their client. And so they may have very unrealistic expectations for that person, like showing up in court, (laughs) showing up on the right date, showing up on time, you know, keeping contact information up to date. They say that there's, you know, some records, medical records or whatever, and they're going to go get them and then they don't. And so, you know, having been a practicing attorney in the courtroom for many years, you know, it was sadly like domestic violence victims especially were just painted with this terrible brush of how unreliable they were, how like fickle they were, and just the bane of many private attorneys' existence. And, you know, I think all of that is because of these, you know, unrealistic expectations of what this person, you know, really is capable of doing in the moment. And so if that client happened to have a victim's advocate, that could just make a world of difference to the outcome of those types of cases. Um, Again, that emotional support and, you know, just keeping them on track, you know, still letting them make their own decisions. But, you know, sometimes it just needs a gentle reminder that they were going to get something or, you know, they have court date coming up the next week or something like that. You would think as often as we deal with these cases, right, and and domestic violence cases, family law, all these things that we would actually be experts in the criminal justice system around it. But I think you're right. I think women so many times lose their credibility from what is very real experiences and responses to a violent um, history, a violent situation and those traumatic pieces. And so it always sort of surprises me, but it was as we as advocates can help either explain that or prepare and support the survivor through this. So as you said, they're not missing a court date and they're making sure they're following up on the tasks that the attorney had left for them. And then sometimes there's the in and out of the relationship, right? And both can be very intense. So one minute we're wanting a no contact protective order, and then we might go to court and want the whole thing dropped. And that could be a a mix of things, right? It could be that they're being harassed and badgered by the person and they feel safer to stay in the relationship and coerced to stay in, or it could be financial reasons. It could be a myriad of things. And so our role as an advocate to kind of wonder, you know, what has made this change? And can we dig into that a little bit? Because is this something that she's really wanting or is she being forced into something because she doesn't feel she has other options? But it's really hard for attorneys and judges and prosecutors to see through all that. I think they could be better, but but it's hard for them to sometimes see through all that. And so, again, if you have that relationship as an advocate, with the system a little bit that they can trust you to support that individual. I think that that could be critical for outcomes. Right. And um, I'd also like to point out that, you know, there are victims advocates that work in the systems. So, you know, basically we call those systems-based victims advocate versus the advocates that work for our programs and other like programs that are community-based advocates. And I think it's important for our advocates and survivors to realize that the system-based advocates have a slightly different role. And at the end of the day, you know, they're working for their boss, be that, you know, the chief of police or the sheriff or the KSP post commander or the county attorney or the Commonwealth attorney. And so, you know, depending on the way that office is structured, that individual prosecutorial or police-based victim advocate, you know, may be sort of less focused on 
the survivor and much more focused on how can we get this case, you know, through the system quickly and efficiently. And an, a really important piece to remember is that systems-based advocates don't have the same confidentiality requirements that our community-based advocates do. And so, you know, a survivor should know that going in so that they'll know that whatever they say to that systems-based advocate, you know, that person is kind of duty-bound to share that with their boss if they think that's going to impact the case. The caveat to that is, you know, some system-based advocates are given more leeway in that regards by their bosses others aren't. Some systems-based advocates are basically utilized as just simply a witness liaison, if you want to call it that, you know, just making sure people are aware of their court dates and that they need to show up, et cetera. And they're really not doing a lot of advocacy. And so again, you know, a community-based advocate, like those that work at our domestic violence shelters, they play that really important role of you know, being very supportive and empowering to survivors, and they may not be getting that anyplace else. And that goes back to the very beginning when we were talking about confidentiality being sort of a cornerstone of who we are and what we do. And so it might not be safe and feel trusting to talk to an advocate over here who you know is going to have to report back to their boss, where in our advocacy relationship, the survivor is the boss. They're they're in the driver's seat and they're kind of holding that relationship. And so if they tell us something and they tell us something that may even have some sort of criminal behavior into it, we can hold hold that space for them safely and so that we can begin to process the healing process where if you were telling that to a sheriff, law enforcement, criminal justice, there might be a tendency to either act upon that behavior or it might kind of lose some of that credibility that they had previously going in. But you're right. I think, again, it's sort of knowing who your criminal, your partners are, your criminal justice partners. Some advocates that I know in some of our counties, they're pretty good advocates. I mean, they really are. I don't think they replace our advocates, but they're good. And I think they have been given some leeway to really make sure that the emotional well-being of the individual going through that process is really, you know, is being paid attention to. But at the end of the day, we're either deciding whether we're prosecuting a case or not prosecuting a case where that is not the agenda of the shelter advocates. Absolutely. Yeah. So, We're kind of done with this section, but there's so much, you know, there's so much into advocacy and community-based advocacy. I I don't know if there's any kind of last pieces that you sort of want to end in, something that you feel from when you've done in-person trainings that always sort of bubbles up and comes up that you want to talk about, or how are you feeling? Well, it's sort of like when we talked about confidentiality and documentation and do no harm. I think at the end of the day, You know, advocates just need to always keep that mantra at the front of their brains, do no harm. And, you know, when it comes to advocacy versus the practice of law, I like to say that, you know, if somebody, you know, just hung up a shingle and said they were a brain surgeon and you went to that individual and they're like, you know, they've maybe they've read a few books or something about brain surgery. Heard about it. And they operate on you and then they harm you. You know, we don't want that happening. And so even though there may be 
survivors that want you to act like an attorney. There may be judges that want you to sort of step into that role because the person's not represented. You know, there may be community partners who kind of look upon you as sort of like a semi-attorney because they know you so well and they have a really high admiration for the work that you do. You know, but we don't want to harm survivors. And so we need to be very sure that we don't cross over that line for any of those reasons. That's true. I think some folks have been doing this work for 10, 20, 30 years, and we do begin to hold an expertise and other people, not just the survivor, but other agencies can sort of pull us into that. And I think we can get our own little ego too, right? Sometimes we meet those folks and we're like, well, I know this better than, better than they do. And we need to hold dear to what it is that we, that we do. We need to maintain that trust and that intentionality as we're working with folks. And so we need to not muddy the waters, I don't think, in that. So, well, thank you so much for being here today. It is a complex piece. My biggest thing is, you know, listen to this, review your member program service standards, get out in the community, find out who the players are, find out what they do, and work with your own agency to make sure you're following through your protocols. And look for those patterns. Like I always tell staff when they see something that doesn't seem right, sometimes it's a glitch, you need to address it. But you start seeing patterns of things that are inappropriate or wrong. You need to make sure that we give that information back. This judge is always doing this. This police officer is always doing this. We need to get back in, you know, and make some system changes, perhaps. Yeah, because that's the other piece of advocacy is not just working with that individual survivor, but trying to make the community as a better whole. Yes, as a whole better. (laughs) (laughs) Something's better and something's whole. Yes. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the KCADV podcast series and we appreciate you tuning in. Thank you.